Hello everyone, welcome back to Atomic Hobo. In the last two weeks I've done four Minutes of Threads episodes. That's where we do a close study of the film Threads, four minutes at a time. And of course the film will end eventually, so we will no longer have that great nuclear pleasure. So I've been wondering what to replace it with. And I'm going to do four minutes of When the Wind Blows, which I think is the second best nuclear war film. But in close third place, so close as to be almost imperceptibly behind, is The War Game, which of course has a fantastically interesting history behind it. So I'm also going to do four minutes of The War Game, but my study of The War Game is going to be for patrons only. So if you sign up to my Patreon for £3 a month, you get access to four minutes of the war game plus all my other extra Atomic Hobo episodes. So I'm going to do the first episode here and if you like what you hear then as I say you can sign up on Patreon. As I say £3 a month gets you access to extra podcast episodes. Now I can probably assume that uh, if you listen to this podcast then you know about the unique history of the war game and its controversy. But if you're new then here's a quick recap. The War Game is a, a drama, but is filmed as a straight documentary. It's a short film, only about 46 minutes in length, made in 1965 and filmed in black and white, and it's supposed to look highly realistic. Some people have told me they find it even more distressing than Threads. The War Game tells a story of the world's descent into nuclear war, focusing on a limited nuclear strike on Kent and goes on to show post-strike society and the absolute futility of civil defence. It was commissioned by the BBC, but when they saw the finished thing, they got cold feet and they banned it. The official reason given for the ban was that it was, quote, too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting. But the real reason is that the Home Office, uh, scared of public reaction, surely lent on the BBC to pull it. I write about this extensively in the BBC chapter of my book, which will be out next April. The War Game, despite being banned from British television, uh, it was shown overseas and went on to win an Oscar for Best Documentary, but remained banned over here. The BBC only showed it 20 years later when they paired it with threads showing it in 1985 in a nuclear double bill to mark the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 20 years it took them to correct the wrong of banning it. If you are a fan of the war game then I recommend the film Culloden by the same director Peter Watkins The films are often sold together on the same DVD, so you might have it if you already have the war game. The film is of interest as it is similar in style and execution to the war game, both highly realistic documentary style, using locals as actors and extras, and having the cameras out on the the battlefield as the fighting takes place, that sort of thing. You can see how Culloden uh, inspired the war game. And similarly, you can see how threads came from the war game. 
See my podcast with uh, Mick Jackson, the director of Threads, for more info on that. So let's jump into the film. It opens with a short narration, just as Threads does. Britain's present nuclear deterrent policy threatens a would-be aggressor with devastation from thermonuclear bombs to be delivered by Victor and Vulcan Mark II aircraft of the British V-bomber force. In a time of international crisis, it is at present planned to disperse a part of this V-bomber force to certain RAF and civilian airfields spread throughout Britain. These are their approximate locations. To each of them, Russia has probably allocated a certain number of her intermediate-range nuclear missiles, which are at this moment pointing at military objectives in Western Europe. And to each of these locations, being those 25 key cities in which reside almost one-third of the entire population of Britain, Russia has probably allocated a further unknown quantity of thermonuclear missiles. As that narration plays, we see simply a map of Britain with all the relevant airfields marked on it. And then again, one showing all the target cities. And yes, the nice, clean white map is soon peppered with these black splodges here, there, everywhere, showing what we have always stressed on this podcast, that Britain is geographically too small and too crowded to have any kind of effective civil defence and nuclear war. We just have too many targets. We're just too damn interesting. Too many targets crammed into too little space so that if the Soviets managed to hit their British targets, any bit of land which had escaped blast and firestorm would surely be eventually blanketed with fallout. There is just nowhere to run in Britain. And that makes civil defence against nuclear attack futile. Here's the narrator again. Each of these cities and each of these airfields combine to crowd into Britain more potential nuclear targets per acre of land mass than in any other country in the world. Now, if you look at the map at the beginning of the war game, um, the upper half of Scotland is missing. It's been cut off by the frame, as um, I suppose it was not of any importance in this context. There are no military targets or big cities up there. Well, we must remember this film was made in 1965. And of course, Scotland later, just a few years later, became of huge Cold War importance. Because that is now where Britain's nuclear weapons are kept. They are stationed on the Clyde. They are just about (laughs) half an hour's drive from where I am, I suppose. Not only are Britain's nuclear submarines kept here, but the Americans also had a base during the Cold War for their Polaris nuclear submarines here. But the Wargame map only specifies airfields and cities as targets, because when the film was made, Britain's nuclear weapons were still carried on planes, the V-bombers. Within a few years, that role would be lost, and the Royal Navy would take over the nuclear role, with submarine-launched missiles, and that, of course, would put Scotland on the front line in the Cold War. But anyway, for now, for the purposes of the war game, there are no nuclear submarines. Britain's nuclear weapons at this point in time were carried on the V-Force. 
That is, three different bombers, the Valiant, the Vulcan and the Victor. There were no um, missiles at this point on submarines or in silos. It was all to be delivered by bomber. As the narration tells us, the V-bombers could be dispersed to airfields all across the country. You don't put all your eggs in one basket, of course. These uh, dispersal bases were scattered all over the place, which makes the V-bombers safer, but at the same time means the rest of us aren't, because Britain becomes riddled with targets. There were 36 dispersal bases in total, one of which was RAF Finningley, which of course features in threads. There were 10 main RAF bases which held the V-force in normal times, and then if things had got nasty and we began to slide to war, they could be ordered to disperse, giving them 36 bases instead of the standard main 10. Another of the dispersal bases was RAF Manston, which, as you will see, is the target for the nuclear strike which features in the war game. There is a big story to be told about Britain's switch from the V-Force to nuclear submarines, and I assume we'll look at that later in another podcast episode. But um, in brief, the V-bombers could, um, obviously, drop nuclear bombs, but from 1963... They could also be equipped to carry nuclear missiles. Britain favoured the so-called Blue Steel Missile, which could be launched from the V-bombers, but had quite a short range, so it needed to be within 100 miles of its target before launching. Not ideal, of course, because it means you'd have to send your guys deep into the Soviet Union to make your nuclear strikes. Well, we didn't need to worry for too long about the negatives of the Blue Steel because it very quickly became obsolete as Soviet air defences improved. Looking around for an alternative to Blue Steel, Britain had hopes of getting its hands on the new American missile, the Skybolt. It was a superior missile and so having it would give the V-bombers a longer lease of life. We could keep using them. So here comes the big American Skybolt. Stick one of them on a V-bomber and the V-force becomes fabulous again, cutting edge, everyone's a winner. Except this is the real world and the Americans weren't going to hand over Skybolt to us for nothing. And so talks were opened and it was agreed that we could have Skybolts if the Americans, in exchange, could have a nuclear submarine base somewhere in Britain. So, in 1961, the Americans moved into the Holy Loch in Scotland. They had a base for their Polaris subs. So, come on, gimme, gimme, gimme that skybolt, said the British. Our V-force is waiting. So it was, um, (laughs) terrible bad news when the Americans said, uh, sorry, actually we've cancelled the skybolt programme. That bad news was delivered in December 1962 and our then Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, (laughs) was quite annoyed. So he and a team set off for the Bahamas for a conference with JFK and his guys. After all, the British had just given the Americans the Holy Loch, a whole submarine base. We need something in return. There's no way Macmillan is going back home empty-handed from the Bahamas. It's time to cough up, Kennedy. What have you got for us? 
So after much debate out in the Bahamas, the Americans finally agreed to give Britain something arguably far better than the Skybolts. They agreed to share with us their new Polaris nuclear submarine-launched missiles. Interesting deal. Polaris was better than Skybolt, but it would effectively mean the end, or at least a big decline in the importance of our V-Force. Taking on Polaris meant that our nukes would now be launched from submarines, not planes. It also meant that another nuclear submarine base would have to be built, so Glasgow, my city, found itself with two massive targets just 30 miles or so from the city. The American base at Holy Loch, and then the British one at the Gearloch. Nuclear submarines were in, and the V-bombers began their decline. Of course, the V-bombers didn't vanish instantly. The, the Valiants were taken out of service quite quickly in 1965, when cracks were discovered on their wings, but the Vulcan and the Victor, they stayed around, finding new roles. Indeed, the Vulcan famously flew in combat during the Falklands War in 1982 in the Black Buck Raids, although obviously not carrying nukes. So, back to the film. After our short introductory narration, we switch to the action. It is February, 16th September, and a police messenger is zooming down the street in a motorbike. We hear a news broadcast telling us the Chinese have invaded South Vietnam. Here's a clip from the news broadcast explaining why we're about to slide into nuclear war. London, Friday the 16th of September. It's just been confirmed that late last night, in order to show collective communist support for the Chinese invasion of South Vietnam, the Russian and East German authorities have sealed off all access to the city of Berlin and have stated their intention of occupying the western half of the city within 48 hours unless the Americans in Vietnam withdraw yesterday's decision to use tactical nuclear weapons against invading Chinese forces. There's obviously a big difference from Threads here, which spends the first half of the film building the tension and the dread. The war game just drops you straight in. And just as Threads uses a crisis in the Middle East to kick off the nuclear conflict, the war game likewise turns to a topical trouble spot in the early 60s that was Berlin and Vietnam. The war game was completed in 65 against the backdrop of the ongoing Vietnam War and just a few years earlier, the infamous Berlin Crisis. As we just heard in the film's news broadcast, the Soviets had sealed off access to Berlin. This is exactly what happened during the Berlin Crisis of 1961, when the Communists demanded that all armed forces leave Berlin. That's including those stationed in the western zones of Berlin. Everyone out, the commies demanded. That crisis provoked the building of the Berlin Wall and the infamous standoff between American and Soviet tanks at Checkpoint Charlie. It was also during the 1961 Berlin crisis that the Americans brought their tactical nuclear weapon, the Davy Crockett, into play, and we will return to the Davy Crockett later in the film. So we see the real-life scenarios being mirrored in the war game. Vietnam, tensions in Berlin, sealing off the city, the introduction of American tactical nuclear weapons, 
little wonder then that the government uh, were so nervous of the war game. Not only was it done in a realistic documentary style, but it was bringing recent real-life threats and flashpoints into the film. It was being pinned far too close to reality, you might argue, if you were in the Home Office and saw how real these threats were and how paltry your civil defence plans were. So in this scene, the motorbike messenger races down the street and stops at the town hall. The scene was filmed in Chatham in Kent and he's driving along a street called The Brook and he goes past the Army and Navy Hotel pulling up at the town hall. According to Street View, these buildings are still there, although their purpose has changed. The Army and Navy Hotel is now a pub called Churchill's and the Grand Town Hall building built in the lovely Renaissance style, is now the Brook Theatre. The town of Chatham, of course, has a nuclear connection, previously being home to the Royal Navy's famous Chatham Dockyard, which closed in 1984. But from 1968 onwards, the Chatham Dockyard had been involved in refitting nuclear submarines. I dipped into the local newspaper archives here, Um, I rarely need an excuse for that. I love old newspaper archives, uh, access to which is paid for from my Patreon income. Thank you, patrons. And it showed me uh, lots of adverts in the local press in the 70s aimed at local school leavers, advertising jobs at the Chatham Yard working on the nuclear submarines. Here's one from the Faversham News from February 1969. School leavers want to work on nuclear submarines? Let us train you at Chatham Dockyard, where you will meet some of the most modern and complex warships in the world. The advert says they accept boys for a huge number of roles on a craft apprenticeship, but girls may only apply as sailmaker apprentices. On a more serious note, the East Kent Times and Mail reported in May 1977 that a nuclear train had derailed near Chatham. The article says, Train services from London to Thanet were disrupted last week when a special transporter designed to carry nuclear fuel for submarines jumped the rails near Chatham. The article goes on to say that everything was cool because the train was empty at the time and gives extra reassurance from British Rail. Quote, But British Rail saved there would have been no danger from radiation because the container is cradled between steel girders hermetically sealed and rupture-proof, even in a crash. So that's uh, Chatham and Kent. Back in the film, our police messenger zooms to the town hall, the door of which is guarded by two police, with another two standing guard inside, and then there are more at the foot of the grand staircase. A sign, of course, that these are not ordinary times. This is something we see in threads too, ominous signs that war is gathering, and yet, looking at this scene, ordinary life in Chatham continues. The buses are going along the streets, it's a sunny day, and people are out and about, shopping and chatting. Indeed, this is a very strong message we see later in the war game, that the general public are simply not clued up on the nuclear threats and what it means for them. So the authorities here, the men in suits and the men in uniform, are 
already busy, already taking action, already getting ready for war. The civilians, the locals, the ordinary folk, nah, they're just carrying on with life. Our messenger runs up the stairs inside the town hall. As he does so, he goes past more police guards. And the news report, which is still speaking over the scene, tells us something quite terrifying. But it's uh, delivered, of course, in that standard RP BBC voice. So there's no indication that this is anything scary or out of the ordinary, other than the words themselves. As from 12 noon today, the central government will cease to function and the administration of the country will be handled by 15 regional commissioners. Yes, that is the sign that we've reached the point of no return in the slides to nuclear war. Power is being removed from London and will disperse around the country, but it effectively being divided up into regions which will govern themselves until that uh, distant, sunny day when normal life can return and central government can set up once again in London. Our messenger running up the stairs and through guarded doorways finally manages to, to deliver his message. He enters a room which has been set up as some kind of emergency HQ for the wartime government of this area. As the voiceover tells us, all over Britain local councils are organising themselves in this way, bringing out their emergency plans, sorting out how they will organise evacuation, feed the survivors, bury the dead. We've seen that in threads also with our Sheffield Town Hall councillors. But the first task that our Chatham councillors need to look at is evacuation. Of course, evacuation had fallen out of favour by the 80s, so we don't see it in threads. Or at least we don't see pre-war evacuation. We see post-war um, self-evacuation with refugees trying to trek over the moors. But anyway, let's, <laughs> let's not bring threads into this. Let's the, let the war game have its own thing without always having to bring threads into it. I'm, I'm just, as you know, obsessed with threads. So in the 60s, evacuation was still taken seriously as a, a civil defence option in Britain. And Kent, where the film is set, of course, will be a reception area. It will receive evacuees from target areas. The message being delivered by our police messenger states that evacuation is now to commence. Again, another clear sign that war is imminent. Here, the council leader reads out the message he's received, which states the blunt truth of evacuation, which is that not everyone is included. As from 0900 tomorrow, we are to receive a total quota of 60,000 evacuees in five priority classes. Class one, children under 15 traveling with mothers. Class two, school children under the age of 18. Class three, adolescents under the age of 18. Class four, expectant mothers. Class five, people who are blind, crippled, aged or infirm. We should be are there receiving- any fathers? No, no fathers. We have seen similar in Ukraine at the moment. Um, men of fighting age have not been allowed to leave the country as refugees. That's because they're of course needed to fight and defend the country. This wouldn't have applied in nuclear war, but men of working age would, in most evacuation schemes, be told to remain in place so that they could continue, until the last possible moment, working. After all, if everyone downs tools and leaves their offices and factories and businesses, then 
the economic life of the country grinds to a halt and, arguably, the enemy will have won without striking a single blow. They will have ruined us economically. So the evacuation scheme referred to here will keep fathers and elder sons at home. It will split up families. Women with their children will be taken to Kent and billeted there with other families. And we know from the experience of evacuation in the Second World War that this caused a lot of tensions. Evacuation wasn't all about welcoming cute and grateful little urchins into your country cottage. It was often about having rowdy, distressed, upset and dirty children, some of whom had lice due to the urban poverty they'd come from, some of whom would soil and wet the bed due to the trauma of being torn away from home. Sometimes your evacuee might be a mother and her young children, or a pregnant woman, and then tension could spring up about bringing an adult into your home. How should the home be run with this other adult there? How should chores and responsibilities be shared? If the evacuee mother starts washing the dishes, is she being helpful? Or is she dropping a sly hint that your house isn't as clean as it should be? On the other hand, if she stays in her room, is she being lazy and sulky? Or is she just trying to give you some space and keep out of your way? Another issue which would have arisen another issue which might have arisen due to the mass immigration to Britain after the war was the presence of black people. We know Britain had a desperate labour shortage after the war and called on the Commonwealth to help. Come to Britain and help us rebuild. And thankfully many people did. But of course there were some in Britain who used the presence of these new arrivals to stoke racial tensions, and the war game picks up on that by showing us a black lady on one of the evacuee buses. She's alone, and she's coming into Kent on an evacuee bus from Bermondsey. Now, of course, I'm relying on a bit of Cockney stereotyping here, but I suppose in the 60s, Bermondsey would have been seen as a a working-class down-at-heel district, and certainly one that had been battered terribly in the Blitz. So I suppose the implication here is that this woman is going to perhaps suffer a double helping of discrimination, being from the working class East End of London and also being black. She is also portrayed as being very much alone. Everyone else on the bus is chattering, but she is quiet and solitary. And yes, we do see hints of racial tension later in the film. We'll come to that in one of our future episodes. So our four minutes ends here with the narrator warning us that the British evacuation scheme might fail at this very early point at its outset because it will split families up. In the Second World War, it was just the children who went, of course, and some pregnant women or mothers of the very young, but the line was quite clear about who goes. The line is blurred in the evacuation plan in the war game. So we have cases of fathers and sons staying in the cities and the mothers being sent off into the unknown. Would they go? Would they leave? Or would they stay with their family? Here's a clip. According to the last published government plan, there is no provision made for granting the facilities of evacuation to able-bodied men over the age of 18. It is therefore, even at this early point, that an attempt at mass evacuation might fail because it's not known how many women 
would refuse to leave their husband and their home. So that is our first four minutes of the war game. And as I say, the subsequent episodes will be on my Patreon website, available to subscribers. £3 a month gets you access to them and all other additional episodes that I've got there. So please take a look, if you're interested, at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me say hello and welcome to my new patrons who've joined in the past week. We have Pippin, who just signed up today. Aidan McKeown. Jamie increased the amount he pays each month. Thank you, Jamie. Also, Chris Smith. Paul Griffiths also increased his donation. And hello and welcome to Gary McCammon, Zoe South, Ronky Chalmers, Scott A. Joseph, MD, and Mark Nelson. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And I'll be back next week with another episode.